episode 189. We've reached the tipping point. Today, I speak with Alex Young, who is a global strategy partner over at Ernst & Young. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Today, I sit down with Alex Young, a global strategist over at Ernst & Young. We talk about the tipping point that the healthcare industry has reached and why. The information Alex covers today has implications to you no matter pretty much where you work in the healthcare industry, from insurance carriers to providers to pharma and most especially to employers. My name is Stacy Richter and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Alex. Thanks for having me. I'm wrestling here because on one hand, there is an excess amount of unnecessary care that's going on. And that's been proven endlessly on any number of surveys and studies that have been done, which shows just the amount of unnecessary care. Then we also have very, very high drug costs, which are being paid often. But combined with this, people are making stabs at controlling costs. Right. When I am approached by a client to help them with their business strategy, I look at three and I'm going to put this down there for a foundation for what I'm about to say next, because I think it's important. The first thing you have to look at is the business model. And when I say the business model, I'm talking about the business In this particular industry, the business practices are governed by terms and conditions and cracks, contracts which are not transparent. And in some cases, contracts that include gag clauses in which the parties are not allowed to talk about the terms and conditions. But those gag clauses conceal business practices that advantage one party over the other. The problem with that is that you have an ecosystem of stakeholders that is interdependent on one another. So if a third party can't see the deal that's cut between two other parties, they're at a disadvantage. Number two, the second thing you look at is the operating model. The operating model is made up of the policies, procedures, tools, technology, and people that operate the environment in which business is transacted. From an operating model perspective, we have inefficiency, significant inefficiency. And in some cases, in some parts of the healthcare ecosystem, whether it's in transaction processing or in pharmacy dispensing or in drug supply management or in hospital capacity, we have capacity constraints in one side and excess capacity in the other. So, for example, we have capacity constraints and shortage of primary care physicians. On the other side, we have excess capacity when it comes to outlets for prescription drug dispensing. There's 65,000 pharmacies. And in some cases, there have been analysts that have indicated that we might be at 20 or 30 percent excess capacity. We don't need that many to dispense all of the products that are out there. They're inefficient. What that does is it drives up what's called operating expense or cost to serve. Those processes are not efficient. We also have excess capacity when it comes to technology platforms. We have redundant systems, redundant data exchanges, redundant data, none of which is rationalized. And unfortunately, we don't have an efficient and effective operating model across these companies because from a competitive standpoint, that operating model is their value proposition. And they use it to differentiate themselves from their competition because it is a set of capabilities that distinguishes them from a service perspective. So because there aren't any standards, 
either at the state or federal level that create guidance around what an efficient operating model should look like, we have a proliferation of inefficiency. The last thing is the economic model. Economic model, unfortunately for this industry, is not transparent. Not only is it non-transparent by the nature of some of the contract language I talked about earlier, it is completely irrational. There are perverse incentives that create the ability to move money around the system and in some cases retain some of that money as profit. We have not performed our duty as an industry to ensure that the dollars that we are collecting in premiums from individuals are being effectively used to pay for care. We don't audit where the money comes from. We don't audit where the money goes. don't audit what it's spent on. We don't ask for an accounting of how it's spent or whether it's efficient. What we look at is the data of the payments that were after they'd already been decided. We don't look at whether or not they were necessary or services were necessary. We don't apply enough judgment, and there isn't criteria for determining whether something is necessary to pay for or whether it's redundant to pay for it. Unfortunately, the data that we collect is retrospective. We can only look backwards and not forwards. And we don't have enough guidance around what isn't appropriate to pay for. But I can tell you from the analysis that I've done from a financial standpoint, no one's asking the question, if I give you a dollar, how did you spend it? I am sure that contributes to many of the issues or problems that we are seeing in the healthcare industry today. Although maybe I should phrase this in in the form of a question, Alex. What problem are we actually trying to solve? The problem we should be trying to solve is the efficient and rational use of the dollar. We should be looking at the economic model. We have focused so much on the business model that we forgot that the economic model is what's broken. Give me an example of that. So how we pay for drugs is a great example. We beat up on prices, but not on how those prices are set. The actual mechanics of setting a drug price is the problem. The mathematical equation or the formula that is used to construct the price is the problem. The price is not the problem. The equation is made up of multivariates. When I say multivariates, I refer you back to your algebra classes when we talked about linear equations where you're solving for multiples. There are multiple variables in the equation of a drug price because there are multiple parties that contribute to the price of the drug based on credits and debits applied to the price when it is set by the drug company. That price gets manipulated in the value chain by multiple parties that touch the product. They might be adding a profit or a mark. They might be taking a discount against it. They might be getting a retrospective rebate or credit against it. So every time that price moves through the system, it changes. It becomes a multivariate mathematical equation. So the problem with it is that we start out with one number, but because we've applied multiple variables of debits and credits against it, we end up with a completely different number. And in some cases, we might be inherently increasing it without the intent of making it higher, but middlemen or the parties in the middle are frankly money around and getting paid for that service, we've created an irrational economic model in which there's profit across the entire value chain. And I would ask, is that necessary? Are those services necessary? Or are we doing what we're doing because we've been doing it that way for 30 years and we haven't stepped back to ask ourselves, is this a redundant process? 
is it necessary for these services to be performed? Are these parties necessary in the value chain at all? I mean, we have a consolidated market. We're moving into an environment where there's automation. We're going to be moving into an environment where we have blockchain. Are all of these financial transactions, the way we perform them today, even necessary? And are they contributing to the price? I don't know about you, but I have seen many a slide and whiteboard, which is covered by someone attempting to follow the dollar. (laughs) And it's just packed. And there's a minimum of five points of contact in between. Exactly. One of the things that you had mentioned early on is that, you know, you've got, as an example, you said there's three parties and two parties make a deal. And then the third party can't really see what's going on. I am assuming that that third party that we were talking about there that can't see what's going on is probably, if not the patient, then an an employer who in in many cases is is the ultimate payer. So a lot of what you have been discussing right now relative to making sure that as we're discussing a strategy, the three things that you mentioned, the business model, the operating model, and the economic model, that's kind of advice for an employer to get a handle on. That's right. So anytime an employer believes they have outsourced a function, they still have a duty as the ultimate plan sponsor to make sure that the outsourced vendor to which they have given that responsibility is acting in their best interests and in the best interests of their members and beneficiaries. From my experience and the observations I've made, most employers don't know what to ask. They don't know what to look for. And in some cases, when they do know what to ask for and what to look for, they're told not entitled to see any of those contracts. We've created a situation where employers don't even have the power to ask the questions necessary to audit how their money's being spent. Is that irreconcilable or irrevocable? It's not. I think employers can get better about the terms and conditions that they agree to in their contracts. They can get better about demanding that they have access to information or access to audit or access to data don't know what to ask for because they're not getting, one, they don't know because their benefit consultants don't know either and they're not getting good advice, or two, their vendors are telling them they are not entitled to the information. My advice to employers is that you be a lot more forceful as organizations. You're paying their bills. If I were sitting in your shoes, I would be asking many critical questions how it is that they're using your employees' premiums and whether or not they're using them in the best interest of your patients. So, i.e., what you were talking about before, if I give you a dollar, what are you going to do with it? What have you done with it? And I want an accounting of it. I don't want to just know how you used it. I want to know exactly where you used it. And I want an accounting of it. Look, I'm an accountant. Accountants like receipts. We like audit trails. We like to see evidence. We want facts. I don't want you to just tell me, I saved you this much money. Aren't you happy? And that's what's happening to the employer today. They get reports back from their vendors that say, look at how much I... That would be like someone at the store telling me that these shoes are on sale and you save 20%. That's great, but what am I paying? And what am I paying for? I don't want to know what the discount is. I don't know what the price tag was. Yeah, so it's a pair of Keds and they cost $1,000 and we gave you a $300 discount. Isn't that great? (laughs) Exactly. So if we're talking about employers and kind of as on one end of the spectrum, you had mentioned actually patients suing because the employer is kind of part of that chain. And we're talking about self-insured employers here. Are they on the docket to get sued if they are hiring a vendor who is not performing? You could argue that there's a path to that. So I'll give of a lawsuit that uh, was recently filed by a patient that went to the pharmacy to pick up a prescription 
and found out that the cash price of that drug was significantly less than what her plan or out-of-pocket expense would have been. So she started to do some research and she found out that because of the gag clauses and the contracts between the pharmacy and the PBM, the pharmacist was prohibited from telling her how much the drug actually cost from a cash perspective. She could have paid less. Now, you could argue that the employer should have known and could have prevented that by having demanded that those contracts be transparent. But to be honest, the employer legally doesn't have a right to that information because they aren't a party to that contract. So they're kind of in a position where they're not liable. They're just responsible. And there's a huge difference between legal liability and responsibility. What happened in this particular case is that this filed a lawsuit against the pharmacy and the PBM. And that case is still proceeding and is now becoming a class action lawsuit. Know what the courts are going to say when this gets to trial because the evidence is still in the discovery stage. But what's going to start happening is the word gets around. People are writing articles about the fact that the cash price is lower and that you should ask for the cash price. So the awareness is, and the momentum around the awareness is building in social media. And like I said before, we're living in a world where social media creates information transparency and information flow. In the past, that lawsuit would probably have never made it into the newspapers because it would have been an obscure claim between one young lady and a pharmacy. In today's environment, it's something that everyone is watching to see how it proceeds through the court system because it will set a precedent around whether or not there needs to be mandatory disclosure of the terms and conditions that are uh, contracted between two parties that the employer can't see and that the patient can't see. And in this case, the patient is because they are having to pay the out-of-pocket liability. And unfortunately, we live in an an age where high-deductible plans are pretty proliferate. We have significant out-of-pocket liabilities as a result of these plan designs. Quite frankly, that's what's driving some of this as well. Was that lawsuit that you mentioned the same one wherein one of the large PBMs came back and said that despite their marketing, they have no obligation to save patients or employers money on drugs? I think it's a different lawsuit, but I did see that article. Once again, back to employers. Right now, there's, for example, like five points of contact, five middle people involved in the follow the dollar between manufacturer and somebody's paying for it. If you were going to give some advice to an employer, is there any way that a pair, meaning an employer, can unilaterally start to reduce the number of people that are involved in such an expensive transaction? They have the power to do so, but they tell me when I talk to them that they don't feel like they have the negotiating leverage because they're too small. They don't feel they have the negotiating leverage because there aren't enough choices for them to move their elsewhere. So if you're a company that has 100,000 employees or even a company that has 10,000 employees, you have the need for uh, a PBM partner or a pharmacy partner that can handle from a capacity and processing capacity the number of transactions and claims that are going to be generated by your population. Size of these organizations puts them in a position where they have to use one of the big three or one of the big four because smaller competitors can't handle the volume. So they're kind of between a rock and a hard place. They could put these vendors out to bid. They could put their PBM contractor, their pharmacy contractor, whatever, out to bid. The the reality is there's not a lot of competition. So there isn't another company that can pop in 
if they are of a certain size. Smaller and middle markets actually have a little bit more power because their volume is easily transferable to middle market players. But if you're a large Fortune 100 company, your choices are really limited. And it has nothing to do with the fact that there's consolidation. It has to do with capacity, processing capacity. That's so interesting because, and very counterintuitive, you would think that the larger you are, that the more options and leverage that you would have. And, and in this case, exactly. it's the opposite. It's like uh, I knew, learned a new word the other day, monopsony. Monopsony. We have a monopsony. Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In healthcare, it, it's becoming more and more apparent the devil child that that is. Yeah. And it has to do with capacity. No one talks about this because if you're a, an employer of you know, 100,000 lives, you probably have a ratio of members that's 2.5 above that because we talk about dependents and children. So you're looking at 250,000 lives. And let's say you're processing a million transactions. Most of these smaller middle market companies don't have the capacity to process a million transactions. They don't have a, a call center that's large enough to handle those calls. They don't have technology that can run at the same speeds. They're small companies. They don't have the capital to create the capacity necessary to be truly competitive. So these larger companies are almost defaulted to one of the big three. They don't have a choice to go anywhere else. And unfortunately, of the convergence, you also have a convergence in the business models of these big three operators. So they look more and more alike, and they all operate very similarly. So there's very little distinction or differentiation between them. So even if you were to move from one to the other, you're not necessarily getting a better outcome because they're doing the exact same thing. So how, if if I am one of these employers, if I was a large employer or if I was Jamie Dimon, Warren Buffett, and uh, Jeff Bezos, their combo, how, yeah. how would I cut out unnecessary middle people to streamline the operating model to rationalize let's just say, the cost I was paying for drugs? So again, I'm going to say, as an accountant, there's a couple of general rules. The first one is you never pay in percentages. Percentages create, in any industry, when you apply percentages to prices, whether they're debits or credits, they can create perverse incentives and artificial inflation. You never pay in percentages. So that's one principle. The second one is to split the economic model from the service model. There are certain services you need these companies to perform separate from how you pay for those services or how you pay for the end product. The economic model needs to be about the value. The service model needs to be about the outcome. So there needs to be two different types of conversations that an employer is having with a partner. What are the services that you're providing for me? And then I can determine what the value is that I should pay for those. And you shouldn't quote me a price that says it's a percentage of the aggregate dollars that you're spending because you're creating a perverse incentive. The larger my claim pool, the more money you have to play with. And that's what's created in healthcare. And it's not just on drug prices. It's on inpatient confinement stays. It's on physician office visits. Employee benefit consultants come to the market and they tell an employer, here's what your total spend is. Here's what your trend is. Here's how many basis points I can reduce it by, and here's your savings. I personally think that's the wrong analysis. And the right analysis would be, just to recap. The right analysis would be, what are the unit prices I'm paying for these services? 
kind of tracking that back to to drug pricing, one of the things that I have heard bandied about is that employers should get together and then negotiate prices as a coalition with pharma companies, for example. Or there's all these aggregators right now, physician aggregators that are negotiating with hospitals and delivery health systems is the better term in order to purchase bundled care or reference pricing. Like, what do you think of those initiatives? So I've been in and out of the coalition space for many, many years. When I was an employee benefit consultant, I spent a lot of time with employee benefit coalitions around the country, and I think they are and serve a very valuable role. The problem they have is that employers don't show up. And when they do show up, they're going there for information, not for action. And when I say that, I've observed that personally. The challenge employers have is they cannot come to consensus around the that they want to follow. Every employer thinks they're special and that their plan design is, you know, unique to them because of their culture and their employee composition. And so they want to do things that are highly customized. But when you customize things, you're not creating uh, efficiency of scale. And you can't negotiate unless you have efficiencies of scale because you need scale negotiating leverage. So you can't take 10 employers and put them together in the room if they can't on a consistent plan design or a consistent formulary because they're never going to generate the scale necessary and negotiating leverage that they need to combat some of the contracting issues that they're facing. They have to confront the fact that their plan designs are too customized and too disparate. And until they confront that, they're never going to get over the fact that they've lost negotiating leverage. It makes total sense, if you think about it, that you can't get together and negotiate a price for something if one employer is like, well, in my benefit design, uh, that is something right. that we want. And on another benefit design, they're like, no, no, that's that's excessive. And I think that's why the HTA is struggling. You have a series of what it was 40, now it's 25 employers. I don't even know what the numbers are that got together with the intent of doing exactly that. But they can't come to consensus because... There's too much kind of personalization and demand for customized identity at the table. And what they don't understand is that the, the parties they're negotiating are very standardized. Well, I would think, and maybe I'm just very practical in my day-to-day life, you'd think that there would be some low-hanging fruit, like some kind of diabetes medication, for crying out loud, or like a blood pressure, you know, yeah. like things that I don't know how anyone would disagree. I'm a strategy consultant. I have a huge issue when I hear the term low-hanging fruit, and here's why. Low-hanging fruit that's on the ground has rolled off because it's rotten. <laughs> the fruit that you want top of the tree. You have to get a ladder, climb it, and get it. It's sweeter for a reason because it's closer to the sun. Stop looking for low-hanging fruit. Stop fixing the symptoms. Get to the cause of the problem. Yeah, it's a heavy lift, but we've been doing this for 30 years. How much longer do you want to look for low-hanging fruit? It's going to keep falling off the tree. At some point, we have to confront the fact that we have an inefficient system that needs fundamental reform and from a process improvement standpoint, the fundamentals of process improvement haven't changed in 50 years. You must get to the root causes and worrying about the little things. I mean, if we're going to tackle a diabetic medication price or if we're going to tackle the price of hep C drugs, we're never going to fix the problem. The problem isn't a price. It's the structure of the economic model. And I said that a couple times during this call, and I'm going to keep pushing on that because I think... Look, when you do corporate strategy, you can't be a lazy thinker. You have to war game multiple scenarios, and you must take a long-term view. It's the nature of strategy. What you're seeing employed in this industry is strategy. It's tactics. 
that's how you get to fixing the price for hep C or fixing the price for diabetics or insulin. We don't need tactics anymore. We need real strategy. Her strategy has unfortunately been overused with the wrong definition. Yeah, and that is definitely a fair point. I think where I'm at right now in this conversation is if we're saying that the major issue is that there's five middle people involved and each one of them has a hand in your pocket, but it's tough to get rid of them because they're entrenched legacy players, then what are we doing in the meantime? In the meantime, you have to ask yourself, does that third or fourth player really need to be there? Can I rationalize the chain by making it more efficient by eliminating one of them or moving that function to party in the chain? So if there's five people standing in line and they're all holding hands, but I don't need one of them, can I ask one of the other four to do what that company is doing? Uh-huh. Or can I eliminate two of them and get down to three? Do the payers in this country really understand who all those four are? Like kind of going back to the example that you said at the top of this conversation that you've got one player and they're making deals with other players and the payer doesn't tend to know what's going on there. So is it that the payer is actually writing checks to those four entities or is it that they're only really contacting one of them? And They're only contacting one of them. So how do they... They don't know that the other four exist. That's the problem. Got it. So how do I cut out someone that I don't know? Is that what you're talking about with wargaming? Well, there's enough information now on this topic that if you're an employer and you don't know that there's four middlemen, then shame on you because you're not paying attention to the news. It's all over the the newspapers. It's all over, you know, the rhetoric coming out of, you know, regulators. And I say rhetoric because I have yet to see anything enacted from a public policy standpoint. I actually think some of the proposals are pretty darn good proposals. So I don't want to take issue with them because I think they're headed in the right direction. And until it becomes policy, it's only rhetoric. The point I'm making is that if you're an employer, you have a responsibility to know how your money's being spent. Any other function in your company, whether it's buying technology or buying equipment or manufacturing plants, you perform a significant level of scrutiny over the purchasing decisions. You have procurement departments, you have legal departments, you have audit departments. I don't see that level of scrutiny occurring in employee benefits. And the irony that kills me about that is that it's a massive expenditure for these organizations. Anywhere near the scrutiny it needs to because the, the practice has been the procurement only looks at the final prices and tries to negotiate the best price, not what it's the right thing to buy. Given all that, and you mentioned don't be a lazy thinker, which I love that the visual that you have to war room different scenarios. So is your kind of overarching advice is do what you do every day, you very sophisticated and smart employers, you know, figure this out, get the right people in the room, get the right strategy consultants, and then kind of independently come up with my own individual strategies? Or could you direct, you know, are there resources out there or groups who are already working on this that, that I could hang on their coattails? Yeah, I mean, you could try to work on it on your own. Honest with you, it's not going to be very effective because you're never, no matter how large you are, you're never going to be large enough to have the scale necessary. Even the three companies that have formed, J.P. Morgan, Amazon, and way only have a million lives. In the context of 156 million covered lives in the employee benefits world, that's nothing. Even they don't have enough leverage. When you think about the the power, the negotiating power, scale matters. And I said this before, volume matters you're going to be much more effective if you're working with other employers. And the only avenue I know of today are either the coalitions or some of these other organizations like HTA that have been formed. Now, hopefully they will get 
their strategy aligned and they can move forward because I do think there's lots of potential for them to be very successful. But employers also have to recognize that there are some concessions to be made here. And I don't think people in the value chain understand that reform requires concession. You can't continue to hold on to and demand the same things you've held on to and demanded. You must make concessions, whether it's conceding that your plan designs need to be less optimized or whether or not you know, you're conceding that you, you know, you shouldn't be profiting as much as you're profiting or withholding revenue that doesn't belong to you or, you know, inefficiently using a dollar that you've been entrusted with. Whatever it is you're doing in this value chain, everybody is called for having promoted ridiculous inflation in healthcare. Everyone. So everyone's going to be pointing fingers at one another and you're not going to get herd immunity, the court system, because our judicial system doesn't work that way. So my advice to everyone out there is be prepared to make concessions in the sense that everybody's going to have to look at their people and their practices and their economic model and ask themselves, how can we come to consensus on the right uh, path forward? And you're not going to be able to do that independently. I think we're beyond that. That is advice I hope many take. And I know, Alex, that you had given me an awesome bulleted list of employer actions to reduce pharmacy costs, which we will put in the show notes, which encapsulates some of the stuff that we talked about. And there's a few that we didn't actually get to speak about. So go to the show notes to see that list written out. But Alex, what what exactly do you do for Ernst and & Young? And if someone would like additional information about what your group is doing? Where can they go in search of that? Yeah, they're welcome to contact me at my email address, which I think you have and you can put on the show notes as well. But I'm a strategy consultant. I work with corporations on their business strategy, which includes you know, their business model, their growth strategy, their mergers and acquisition strategy, their capital strategy. I took an interest in this because of my past experience in the employee benefits field and the fact that I serve healthcare and life companies. I don't consult to employers any longer. That's what I used to do. I now consult to the companies that serve employers, and I think every one of them is in a position where they've been asking for advice on how to change their business model, because what they don't want is they don't want the feds or the states to come in and over-regulate them. And I think all of the parties are prepared to make some of the concessions I mentioned earlier, and they're being proactive about it, and they're looking for a path forward. But at the end of the day, the employer plan sponsor is the decision maker here, and I think it's time they step up. I thank you so much for being on the podcast today, Alex. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.